You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Genesis 28, as we continue through the life of Isaac and Jacob. And so starting in uh, verse 46 of chapter 27. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram to where Esau saw. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahaleth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heavens. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so they come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that I give, all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Well, as we come to this section, it's 
clear that it's united around the theme of blessing. Uh, you'll notice the first part of this is where Isaac now finally blesses Jacob uh, out in the open. It's a, an honest blessing uh, this time. And he's repeating the blessing that was given to him and to his father before him. And then in the middle section here, there's this small vignette involving Esau, where it appears he's trying to receive a blessing from his father by trying to be obedient as Jacob was. But then all of that hinges upon the Lord blessing Jacob in verses 10 through the end in this very grand vision that Jacob has. And in it we see the Lord speaking to him and confirming the blessing that Isaac gave and also confirming for Jacob that as he was with Isaac and Abraham, so he will be with Jacob. And Jacob then responds uh, in worship and makes a vow there uh, at that place. And as we look at this section, as it seems to revolve all around blessing for us, I think there's this question then, how do we obtain God's favor? How do we obtain God's blessing? Because throughout this section, as we've seen the life of Jacob and the life of Esau, how Esau has despised his birthright, but yet wanted to receive this blessing of God, how Esau has always gone in the wrong direction or the opposite direction, instead of finding blessing through the one that the Lord had anointed, that he had chosen Jacob and Esau was to come and find blessing in Jacob. And at the heart of this. But I think also as we look at this and as we see that in many ways Jacob is maybe not as bad as he's sometimes painted in the commentaries. Um, he's certainly not virtuous all the time. And we see this great blessing that the Lord pours out upon him and this great vision that he gives. And it is completely and absolutely and abundantly clear that none of this has to do with Jacob's own intrinsic worth and righteousness. It is not that Jacob in any way deserves this great blessing and this great vision of the Lord. And finally, we'll see at the end how this, uh, this scene, this great vision reappears uh, in John's gospel, where Jesus is said to be uh, this stairway, this gate to heaven. So in verses 1 through 5, where Isaac blesses Jacob, the context there as we read those two verses is that uh, Rebekah has told Isaac, that she finds these Hittite women to be very loathsome. They are causing nothing but trouble. And so she tells Jacob, sorry, tells Isaac to send Jacob away, or she really hints at this. But you'll remember further uh, behind all of this is simply that Esau has threatened to kill Jacob as soon as Isaac is dead. And so Rebekah is trying to find a way to preserve the life of her son. But in this, as she sends Jacob away to find a wife, uh, he actually does find a wife. He'll actually find two wives. And so really what she's saying here and what she's asking, even though she has an ulterior motive, it is still necessary for Jacob to find a wife and to find a wife from their clan. And so during this time, Israel is not a nation. There's not this large pool in which they can pull from. So then in order to find a wife, as we've seen, you have to go back to your kinsmen, to your clan, just as 
Abraham married inside his clan. Isaac goes back uh, to Laban's family. And now Jacob is being sent off to do the same. And it doesn't seem as if it's actually quite about whether they are properly worshiping the Lord. As it will be, this is really, as we'll see later in the, the Old Testament, later on that prohibition of marrying outside of Israel was to do with the way in which uh, the worship of God would be corrupted. Uh, but here it seems that there is just trying to keep things inside uh, the clan. As, as you'll remember later, Rachel actually steals household gods from Laban. And so this is a, a theme here that will be brought out later and more fully uh, throughout the rest of scripture. But nonetheless, Jacob is now sent off to find a wife. And in verses two through four, Isaac blesses Jacob uh, once again. This blessing is different from the blessing that he gave earlier, the one in which he was originally intending to give uh, to Esau, but mistakenly gave to Jacob instead. This one uh, very much confirms or reiterates the blessing that was given uh, to Abraham. Here he tells him, may uh, El Shaddai, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a great assembly, a great company of people. And may he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. We see the, the people and the land promise that the land uh, that they're dwelling on would be their land um, in perpetuity and also that Jacob would continue this great um, filling out of God's chosen people, that from him he would continue to fulfill that promise that was given to Abraham, continued through Isaac. And Jacob will be the one who will be called Israel and from him he'll have 12 sons, which will be the really formation of Israel. And then in verse 5, simply Jacob obeys. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went. Uh, here he's been given a task to do. He's been told what to do by his father. And Jacob simply sets off on this mission. And so here we have uh, this blessing that was given uh, that is a different blessing than the, the one he was given earlier, uh, but nonetheless, they are related. Uh, in that first blessing that um, Isaac gives, he speaks of people bowing down and serving you, that you'd be Lord over your brothers and your mother's sons would bow down to you. And then he also then speaks of how those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. And here, as he's confirming this promise of God to Abraham and to Isaac and now on to Jacob. Uh, we can see how it's continuing that Jacob is the one who has been chosen by God to really be the one leading uh, God's people, the one in which will come the 12 tribes of Israel, the one who will bring blessing to the lands and the one who will be a blessing to others. And it's just interesting to think the text doesn't tell us whether Isaac would have given this blessing if he hadn't given that earlier blessing to Jacob. Because it does look like while the blessings are separate, they have overlap to them. And in some sense, if this blessing was given originally to Esau, the one given to Jacob seems like it would almost contradict part of it. 
But it does seem, I think, to draw us back to this theme that the birthright and the two blessings are all completely related uh, together. And so here we get the, the beginning of this question of how do we gain God's favor. Isaac pronounces it, but it's not Isaac who can make it happen. You'll know the way he's blessing him. He, he really doesn't say, I bless you or you should be like this, but may God Almighty bless you. That it'll be in the hand of God to make this happen or not. Well, then Jacob pronounces this blessing. He sends Jacob, sorry, Isaac pronounces this blessing and sends Jacob on his way. And then we're treated to this small interlude in verses 6 through 9 of Esau. So Esau sees the blessing that was given uh, to Jacob. And it looks like from Esau's perspective that simply uh, Jacob's obedience about marrying inside the clan is the reason that he was given this blessing. And so Esau then concludes that the Canaanite women that he has married are displeasing to his family. And so then he sets off uh, to Ishmael to take a wife from him. And you can see the, the way in which the, the gears are turning in Esau's mind. In order to receive this blessing, I need to be obedient and I should marry someone who's a part of our clan, who's from our, our kin, and uh, who could be closer than Isaac's half-brother. And so he marries uh, one of Ishmael's daughters. Uh, it's likely this is possibly Ishmael's firstborn daughter as the sister of Nebioth is uh, Ishmael's firstborn son. But you'll note the way the text just kind of ends with this uh, very deflated uh, conclusion. There isn't really one. Esau desires to have a blessing and he desires to be obedient here, at least as far as Esau goes, to go and to seek and to try to please his father in order to get this blessing. But it's likely here the narrator just concludes what actually happened. There was no blessing that was given uh, to Esau. And in this, he has also now taken on a third wife from the tribe of Ishmael. The text doesn't say anything whether this was right or wrong, but just the way that the clan and the tribe of Ishmael has sort of been at odds with Isaac, it is unlikely that this was a good thing for Esau to do because you'll note that this is probably easier for Jacob to go to Ishmael than it would be to go to Laban. It's a, quite a farther journey, something like 500 miles, I think, of a journey uh, that Jacob has to undertake. But yet that's where Isaac has told him to go and to choose a wife. So again, I think by de deduction, we can say that this is not necessarily a good thing. It appears to be Esau making a bad situation worse. And when what Esau needed to do is to go to Jacob to find the blessing that the Lord has given, here Esau seems to try to do whatever else he can do, but the one thing he needs to do, he will refuse to do that. And so the text just sort of ends there and moves back again to Jacob, who in his obedience has set out, and now he is in Beersheba. This is a place that has predominantly been used where God appears. He appeared to Isaac in chapter 26, verse 32, and he will appear to Jacob once more in chapter 32. And so Jacob is wandering out what appears to be the wilderness, there's no place for him to find, there's no town nearby, so he must now sleep out under the stars using a rock as a pillow. 
and again, alluding to the other big dream sequence that happens in Genesis is the one in which Abraham falls asleep and he sees a smoking fire pot in chapter 15, verses 21 and following. Uh, Abraham has this, uh, what was certainly a, a strange vision, but one that had a great import about it. God is seen as the one making the covenant and Abraham is the one who is unable to do anything. But this small vision that Abraham sees seems to pale in comparison to what Jacob here witnesses. Isaac as well has seen God in some kind of vision, but we're not told. But Jacob, we're given a, a grand and amazing picture, and one that almost seems as if it could be accomplished in a much more simple way. You think of the three angels that show up to speak to Abraham. God could have just appeared as he did to Isaac. And then just to reiterate these great promises. But instead in, in Jacob's dream, he, he seems to be uh, seeing that veil pulled back on reality. And suddenly there in this dream, he can see that there's this ladder, there's this ziggurat, there's this tower that's connecting heaven and earth. And it's just symbolizing the way in which heaven is, is, if you will, intruding into the earthly realm. That from God's heavenly throne room, he is sending out his messengers to and fro across the earth. That God, from this heavenly council, he then issues commands to his messengers. And they then shoot out from his throne room to then go across the earth to accomplish what God has told them. And then they are then returning back, reporting on what they have done. And at the top of this tower, the one who is clearly in command is the Lord Almighty. He stands, he's the one who gives the orders and the messengers then fly off to do what they need to do. And really this picture almost seems to be one in which we're inverting the Tower of Babel. Because there Babel was man trying to build this great staircase, this great tower up to heaven. And the text, in almost comical fashion, has God, it seems, almost peering down and having to squint in order to see this tiny tower that man had built. And God thwarts this in chapter 11. In chapter 12, then, he calls Abraham to send Abraham out. And here we have God standing at the top of this great tower, this great staircase that reaches to heaven. And here God is speaking now to the one that he has called. And he is the one who is sending out his messengers throughout all the earth. And this one man like Abraham, Abraham's grandson, now God would be continuing his plan, the way in which he, he solved or, or sorted out Babel. Uh, now he's continuing that with Jacob. And then here he gives this great pronouncement. So he, Jacob sees heaven opened. He sees the angels ascending and descending. And there the Lord Almighty speaks to him. He says, I am the God of your ancestors. I am Yahweh. I am the covenant keeping God. I am the one who is self-sufficient and eternal. And I am the one who keeps my promises. It really condenses the story of Isaac, but we see the same wording given to Isaac, that the Lord has been with him and has been guiding him and has been helping him, and the Lord has been with Abraham and guiding him and helping him. And now the Lord promises to be with Jacob to 
be with him and to help him and that he can see throughout his family history how the Lord has kept his promises. And he continues with reiterating the same promise that was given to Abraham and given to Isaac. I will give you this land and I will multiply your offspring. But then lastly, we have coming again to this idea of Emmanuel, of God with us. He says, I will be with you. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Just wonderful words there as God has shown this great vision of his power and his might as he shows his command over the heavenly hosts and there to this one man he has chosen out of humanity to be the one who would go forth bringing this great blessing to all the land. He then reaffirms to him that as I've been with your father and grandfather, I will be with you. And so we have here this this promise that's really binding together. This promise that God is with his people is really the glue that holds chapters 12 all the way to chapter 50 together as God is with Abraham, God is with Isaac, God is with Jacob, and then God is with Joseph. And that's really the summation of chapters 12 through 50. And it's interesting that then Genesis is, you can further divide it between the two great events in history, we have chapters 1 through 11 that it ends with man and his might and his power. And we have the toppling of Babel in chapter 11 and the promised seed all the way back to chapter 3. And so we have the, the same promise that started back in chapter 12 that it is still in force. And here we have this beautiful picture of God coming down, of the gate of heaven opened. And so Jacob then awakes from this vision and he's terrified. He's very afraid that now he has somehow stumbled across this great house of God, this gate of heaven. And this is the place he chose to rest his head. He seems to be worried about the fact that he profaned this incredibly holy place. It would almost be like falling asleep and having the tabernacle moved right on top of you and waking up and finding yourself in the holy of holies. Here, Jacob has awoken, realizing that the place he is on has some special significance, that it is a place that is holy to the Lord. And so from that, Jacob then worships. In verses 16 through 19, he takes the stone that he had laid his head upon and sets it up as a pillar, and he'll eventually pour oil on top of it. And really signifying that this is a a holy place. That it really is, from all earthly perspective, it's a plot of land. But when Jacob sees behind the veil, it's it's a type of a temple. It's a meeting place where God and man meet. And from this, in verses 20 through 22, in this type of temple, he then makes a vow. Jacob is sleeping rough. Out in the wilderness, he is fleeing from his brother who would like to kill him. He is in need of tremendous amount of help. He is in distress. And so he makes this vow, this religious vow that's saying, if truly God will uphold his promise, as he said, then the Lord shall be my God. And that this pillar I have set up will be 
God's house. And I don't think that Jacob here is not trusting in the Lord. I think he is simply making a religious vow. He is really just putting into words what the Lord has said to him. He is, in a sense, saying it back to the Lord, confirming his faith. Because what Jacob is asking the Lord to do, he's, he's basically saying what the Lord has just said to him back. And that if the Lord will, will continue to keep him and feed him and give him clothes to wear, this basically keeping him alive. Jacob is not asking for a life lived in luxury. He's simply asking for bread to have and clothing to wear. And that God would bring him back to his father's house in peace. He's basically speaking back to God what God has just said. And I think here he is trusting that God will uphold this, that God will uphold his promise. Because you'll see at the end here in verse 22, he says, and all of that you give me, I will give a full tenth back to you. This idea of tithing comes and reminds us of the time when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek earlier on, signifying that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and Abraham who really comes as one of the greatest in the book of Genesis. Here, Jacob is simply tithing to God as a recognition that God is far greater and far more worthy. And so we have this great vision of Jacob. And likely here, it does also appear that it's possible that this is the time in which Jacob is truly converted. Now, there will be that wrestling match that will happen later where, again, Jacob holds on and demands a blessing from the Lord. So as we think of this text this evening, we have what I think is Jacob's conversion, Jacob's God, and then Jacob's blessing. And you think about the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How do, how do they gain the favor of God? What, what was it that was in them that made God choose them to bless them and to bless those who would bless them and to curse those who cursed them? Well, again, as we've seen in their lives throughout our sermon series, they have their traits in which they do good things. There are times when they trust in situations that seem to be far from easy, such as Abraham leaving and wandering such as Isaac for 40 years praying that the Lord would open Rebekah's womb. To all the different times that Jacob will now be forced to put that trust into action. But nonetheless, we see throughout the book of Genesis that it is simply that God is gracious. And God is merciful to those whom he will have mercy. He will show mercy and grace not because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not because of their devout Worship, not because of anything intrinsic in them. Simply put, he has chosen him. And later, Paul will even point out that between Esau and Jacob, the Lord loved Jacob and hated Esau before anything, anything either of them had done. It was all in completely sovereign grace and mercy that the Lord had poured out upon Jacob. This is what we see as we go through the Pauline epistles later, that Paul will speak about this great blessing that comes to us, not because of our merit, but because of God's mercy. And the book of Genesis has many things to teach us, but certainly one of the main things to see is simply that these people are not worthy of the great grace that they're given. But then as we narrow this, 
Uh, Certainly God gives mercy and grace to those who do not deserve it. But obviously, as we see in the life of Jacob and Esau, that he doesn't give it unilaterally. He doesn't just pour out mercy and grace upon everyone indiscriminately. He has chosen Jacob, and he has spurned Esau. And really what we see here is in the life of Jacob. Jacob is fulfilling this great promise that was given to Eve, that a son would be born who would crush the head of the serpent, that there would be from this lineage, from this line, there would be the one who would bring back Eden. And so it was in Jacob. Jacob here is a a type of Jesus, that you needed to come to Jacob in order to find this blessing. If you blessed Jacob, you would receive blessing. If you cursed Jacob, you would receive curses. And as we've seen in the, the life of Isaac, that what Isaac did, the Lord prospered him, even so that the Gentiles saw that the Lord was with Isaac. And that being with Isaac just had this net effect of bringing prosperity and peace to you. And so how do we find the favor of God? Well, we recognize that it's undeserved, but also we find it in his true representative. We see it in the one that he has chosen, the one he has raised up in order to give blessing to those who bless. And obviously we're going to link Jacob, right, as a type of Christ to Jesus himself. But it's fascinating in John's gospel that Jesus himself takes this great vision, this great uh, temple up to heaven and says that it is him that is truly this meeting place. As he said to Nathanael, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You'll see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Clearly, he's hearkening back to this great vision here. And so what Jacob sees is he sees that there is a way in which there can be access to heaven. He calls this place the gate of heaven, this great access point. What Jacob doesn't know is that this gate of heaven, this pathway there, will eventually be his long and great descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the gate of heaven, the access to heaven, the opening of heaven and all of its great blessings will be found in the true son of Abraham, the second Adam, the true meeting point. Jesus is the true temple that everything is is funneling and, and bringing us to that point. And so how do we find this blessing? Well, we find it simply in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we keep this blessing? It's the same way that Jacob and Abraham and Isaac, they obey, they follow, they do it incredibly imperfectly. But nonetheless, God is with them as he promises to be with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, like Abraham, sojourn on looking for a better city. Like Jacob wrestling and asking and crying out for this blessing to be found and that we will have it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this evening, we just simply see that God is a God of mercy and God is a God of of one who is seeking restoration, overturning man-made futility. And ultimately, we see the Lord Jesus Christ, the true gate of heaven, the one who brings unlimited and eternal blessings forever and ever. So let us pray.
You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co.